Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is a professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Henry Richardson. Henry is professor of philosophy at Georgetown University. He specializes in moral, political, and legal philosophy. He has a new book titled Articulating the Moral Community, toward a constructive ethical pragmatism. It's newly published with Oxford University Press. Now, even those among us who think that morality is rooted in timeless normative truths will nonetheless incline to acknowledge that the overall moral fabric that binds us to one another is subject to renovation and alteration and maybe even innovation of various kinds. To take a simplistic and maybe limited example, the advent of the internet has occasioned the need to coin a host of new moral concepts that are attuned to all the new ways in which people are able to treat one another. Um, Maybe it's easiest to think of uh, the ways in which we're uh, newly able uh, to treat each other badly. Uh, Think about terms like trolling and doxing and poeing and these sorts of things. These are new concepts that have been introduced into the moral vernacular for the sake of identifying novel kinds of moral bad treatment or maybe even wrongdoing. That our moral vernacular expands in these ways I think is pretty obvious. But there's a distinct question concerning how these innovative concepts become authoritative. That is, how new moral concepts come to be binding on us in that distinctive way that morality is binding. Now, in his book, Articulating the Moral Community, Henry Richardson develops a fascinating and very detailed account of how new authoritative moral norms can be introduced. The book treats core topics in metaethics, moral psychology, and the theory of practical reasoning. So as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but also as usual, let's begin with our guest. Hi, Henry. Hi, Bob. Pleasure to be talking with you. Well, it's very nice to talk to you, too, and thank you for writing such a fabulous book. (laughs) My pleasure there, too. (laughs) Before we get to talking about it, though, we usually have uh, guests start off by telling the audience a little bit about themselves. Yeah. Well, I thought I would tell you a little bit about uh, how, in a way, I came to philosophy early, but I didn't realize it. I thought I was headed in a different direction than what what happened with with the change around. Uh, I mean, I, I had had the luck to be exposed to philosophy in high school at a ethics class where primary texts were assigned from Plato. And I actually picked up a copy of Kant's groundwork for myself, which I poured over. And so I was hooked early. Um, and lots, lots of other people knew that I was headed into politics, but I, sorry, that I was headed into philosophy, but I thought I was headed to, to politics or public service. My my parents were each deeply involved in public service, and I thought I was headed in that direction. Right. Um, so, so after college, um, I uh, I didn't I did not major in philosophy in college. Um, after college, I headed into a law public policy joint program, um, and the, one of the key things for me in in um, actually turning towards a philosophy career was was by reacting against the training I had uh, in my master's of public policy degree, um, which, you know, the, the school was purporting to train the leaders of tomorrow. 
And how do you do that? Well, you teach them cost-benefit analysis. Ooh. And uh, I see. You know, well, it, it, it's you know, it can be a useful sort of a, accounting assessment tool. But you know, my thought was there's got to be more to public reasoning. And in particular, I was thinking that we we must be able to reason about the ends. The you know the it, it was clear in the training that the the ends were for cost benefit analysis being given by the willingness to pay uh, of the individual individuals whose whose uh, willingness you get through the through their uh, market behavior or through surveys mm-hmm. or you or we were doing decision analysis where the the uh, decision maker just supposedly hands you a, an aim and you work with it but how do those ends get determined so i headed into graduate school at harvard uh, with a mission to try to figure out how we reason <laughs> about ends and uh you know, I, I I I soon became convinced that um, the political problem was too big for me to tackle in a dissertation. So so I was looking at individual reasoning about final ends, and and I had the great luck initially to work with Martha Nussbaum on my master's thesis on Aristotle on that, right. and and then uh, and then her tenure was denied at Harvard. Uh, uh, listeners may know that story, or they can they can look it up. She's read about written about it. Um, uh, so then I ended up working with John Rawls to finish the dissertation, which was also wonderful. Not not but, a bad second fiddle. Yeah. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really wonderful. I mean, they're both amazing, wonderful philosophers, and but and then they have quite different views and approaches. So it was wonderful to have those sort of twin models and pulls. Um, very enriching uh, for me, certainly all the way through my career. Um, I remember that um, in my own career as a graduate student, there was uh, uh, th- there was still um, you know th- there was still uh, talk about this important m- debate involving Martha Nussbaum about Aristotle and reasoning about the ends. Mm. Um, and I remember Aristotle's ethics seminar, you know, reading a lot of that literature that was in response to some of Nussbaum's uh, articles on uh, on that. Very very good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe maybe among her best stuff. I mean, she's got a lot of good stuff, but uh, great, great stuff there. Yeah, and she's always been good at being provocative and provoking new new insights in people. Um, so yeah, so that was, and and it was it was great to have um, her mentorship in that, and then and since, um, yeah. So I, that was sort of initially how I was thinking about reasoning with that mainly Aristotelian grounding. Um, and uh, and basically my whole career, I've been focusing on reasoning one way or another, um, thinking of it as an activity, because I, you know, I came to it thinking about as an activity that policymakers need to be engaged in, but just more broadly than they, they sometimes think they need to be doing. Um, and so, and then I did get, you know, eventually, after doing a first book on individual reasoning, I eventually got to back to democracy and dem- uh, democratic reasoning. Um, I, I think it was sort of in, in that phase I got uh, interested in what I call, uh, nor- or what I then called anyway, uh, normatively fruitful procedures where some new 
uh, narrative content can be constituted. I, I was uh, seeing that as sort of Rawls talks about uh, pure procedural justice, right. where the procedure fully constitutes what's just, and and then the the the, the perfect or imperfect, where there is a separate independent answer what's just and the procedure gets at it either perfectly or not. And I, and I just thought there was this intermediate possibility. I do think there's an intermediate possibility where uh, the, the just answer is to some extent determined, but not fully. Uh, and that, that the, the procedure can do some further constituting, which is sort of in germ, the, the idea that this new book, develops but um then i was just thinking about about politics which is a little bit easier to make that give that a go so can i ask a, a, a just a, a, an additional question about the 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 development of of um of your career and you know sort of your philosophical perspective because um uh, the, the the interest in pragmatism which um you know is uh both in the the subtitle of this most recent book and is at the very beginning of uh, your first book, if I'm remembering it correctly. I think the introduction, you know, might have mm-hmm. a discussion of Dewey in the first paragraph. Um, just for my own curiosity, maybe the curiosity of some of the listeners, maybe not. But um, uh, so, wh- where did the where did the pragmatism uh, interest come from? <laughs> I, I I owe it to Hillary Putnam. Ah. Uh, so Hillary Putnam. Hillary Putnam was on my dissertation committee, and he said to me uh, at my dissertation defense, or as it was wrapping up, or something, that you know, given what my what I was working on, I really ought to read Dewey, and specifically, he he thought I should read uh, Dewey's theory of valuation, right. which is a piece that talks about the continuum of end means that the you know something that's a a means in one can, context can be an end in the other, and vice versa, and uh, um, and and that and that we revise our ends in view on the fly. Um, so that that's been my touchstone for thinking of myself as a pragmatist is this theory evaluation piece of Dewey's, right? Yeah. Which oddly, um, you know, that little uh, that little monograph oddly had its origins in a, a the book series run by the logical positivists. Right, <laughs> the same series as Kuhn's structure of right. revolutions. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, um, is it okay to start talking about your new book? Is that all right? Well, I wanted to just oh, sure. one little bit of the uh, of of just the overview of what I've done that that's relevant and will will help give sure. people context for the book is uh, I've been working on reasoning all the way through and I've also had my idea about reasoning the the one sort of uh, main ori- uh, original idea or the one the idea that I, I've been the one to do a lot of developing of is the idea of specifying uh, it was specifying ends initially now I'm talking about um, specifying norms mm-hmm. um, this is something that um, an idea that's had some play in the bioethics literature because because of my my colleague Tom Beecham was so kind as to take it up in his best-selling textbook on bioethics with Jim Childress, um, but so th- 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 that's been um, 
very important to me and, and got me drawn into bioethics. And it was working on bioethics, which was the, the subject of my, my previous book to this one was medical research ethics. And that is what drew me really seriously into thinking about special obligations. So there I was thinking about obligations that researchers especially owe to their research subjects or participants. Um, and so both these things ended up uh, really influencing the approach in the new book. Right. And I suppose that the bioethical contexts are really good sites to find um, examples of um, uh, it, it, the need for moral innovation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, you mentioned the internet before, yeah. which is a great example. And the internet, like like medical research ethics on human sub or sorry medical research and human subjects are both contingent developments we might not have had them and both raising thorny new issues seem to be new issues then you the question is always whether some tried and true ethical norm will deal with it appropriately but uh, these things get so complicated that that may not be so well, good. Um, that makes a good segue into into talking about the book, right? Um, sure. So the book is uh, about, very broadly speaking now, and in a way that we would have to um, uh, clarify, but the book is about moral innovation, uh, the, yep. the introduction of new moral norms uh, into uh, um, our, our moral lives, as it were. Um, maybe one place to begin then is with the sort of, you know, with the focus pulled way back. Um, can you just sort of, for the audience, like introduce them to the problematic, right? I mean, there's the, we're innovators, but in order for the innovations to actually count as moral innovations in the full sense, as I uh, mentioned at the very beginning, something has to happen. They have to be authorized. They have to be binding. Uh, so can you you know, help the audience sort of uh, see the, the the broad contours of the of the the problematic that you're working in. Sure, uh, I mean, I think you stated it well earlier, but let me unpack a little Great. bit. What you said is is uh, I am focused on moral innovation, but it's I mean, there are lots of people doing good work on under that heading, moral innovation, and uh, and some of it is, and I'm taking a very different approach from many people because I really am interested in whether new moral norms uh, come into being or become part of morality or become authorized. Whereas a lot of people are, are focused on an, another very important topic, which is how do our moral understandings change? Right. Or how can society be organized so as to better morally motivate people, which are also important tracks of moral innovation. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm really trying to focus on, on, uh, innovation in the content of morality, innovation that changes the content of morality um, itself. So the, the broadest problem that, that the book addresses is the one you've already adumbrated, uh, that um, we think of morality, or, or we, we I, I think of morality, many of us think of morality as having objective bindingness. It certainly purports to be objectively binding. Um, and yet, it's, it seems also apparent that we humans have a hand in shaping it. And right. so the broadest problem is how to reconcile these two. And I, uh, that, I sort of backed into that. I mean, the, uh, 
I'll, I'll explain my more personal problem, which led me to the book in a second. But 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 that that that's the biggest problem that the book uh, ends up addressing, and and uh, has at least a I think a novel take on that um, on that big problem. Um, I tell you the personal problem. Yeah, the problem more peculiar to me is. Um, I mentioned my work on specifying norms, which initially, again, was just sort of this methodological idea that interested the bioethicists, maybe a few other people. Um, and when I was when I was first uh, doing that work, I had a postdoc just a couple years out of my PhD, and was back in Cambridge, and and uh, I was talking about this work with a friend of mine from graduate school, Andreas Volstahl, and uh, we were walking around outside. I remember this very vividly. And he said, yeah, you know, it hmm, sounds kind of intriguing, sounds sort of interesting, uh, specifying norms. Uh, who gets to do that? <laughs> and I was sort of <laughs> taken back and floored, and that was 1989, I believe. And uh, here's my answer. And, uh, <laughs> 2018. <laughs> so, uh, so, I mean, the answer in short is that we, the moral community, are, uh, can do it, and we're the only people who can do it. Um, although uh, we will end up drilling down, I'm sure, onto the theory of directed rights that I have, where right. initially it's pairs of people can put something on the table, but to actually put a new moral norm in into place it takes the whole moral community right right so um why don't we uh, again as a sort of lead up because the the view that you have of um the actual process and involving three steps and, and three stages uh we want to make sure to get to that but um i i really uh appreciated the one of the the, the early discussions in the book uh it's, it's in the very beginning of the book actually um and it, it helped at least in my own mind to sort of situate um important features of uh, of the view as i was working through the book um so early in the book you do have this discussion of sort of like what the role is of moral theory, right? What's the practical point or purpose or objective of, uh, of moral theorizing as such? And I take it that that's part of um, uh, the ethical pragmatism part of, uh, of, of the resulting uh, account of uh, moral articulation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the, those, those thoughts? I mean, I, I, it was um, it's a short part of the, of the story in the book, but I, I thought it was very, very helpful. Sure. I mean that, and that gets that's where the subtitle yeah. comes in is to toward a constructive ethical pragmatism, um, and yeah. So the in in talking about constructive ethical pragmatism early in the book, I I do uh, put forward some thoughts about the practical role of moral theory, um, but it's also this this uh, constructive ethical pragmatism played an important role for me in in motivating this book. Um, so th that term, constructive ethical pragmatism, sort of takes a, 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 a piece from Dewey, uh, as I mentioned, this sort of uh, revising ends in light of uh, obstacles that may arise. They were unexpected, and you're revising it in the basis of some other consideration. So uh, it takes that sort of revision idea and then the 
as sort of the core pragmatist bit and adds stipulation or aspiration that it be constructive in that it sort of stably provide a, a pathway for working out uh, a theory uh, of morality. Um, and so constructive ethical pragmatism was a name I, I, I coined a while back for a, a type of first-order moral theory that doesn't put the good prior to the right um, the way a sort of robustly defined consequentialism would, uh, nor does it simply say there are some principles of right that we somehow have access to that that constrain our pursuit of the good, and they're, they're just independent of the good, but that that uh, neither the good, neither is it the case that the good is independent of the right, nor is it the case that the right is independent of the good, uh, which means they're each dependent on the other. And as I had suggested a long time ago, uh, each is revised in light of the other. And then that that that's the thought then set in first order moral theory. So uh, through Andreas's question of, okay, who gets to do that, is is sort of ramped up in importance. It's not just uh, looking at uh, a person or a couple of people figuring out how to resolve some concrete ethical problem just for themselves, but it's it's talking about moral theory as such. So uh, so one way to look at the book or one of the tasks of the book is to defend the possibility of constructive ethical pragmatism um, so understood. Right, uh, right. But, but now that, that's all without answering your, your question about the practical role of morality. Um, so I can get to that. Yes, uh, please. Yeah, so, so um, I mean, this is shaped, I think, by the way I came into philosophy, which is partly why I wanted to, to mention it, is I, I, I did come into philosophy thinking of it as practically important and should provide some ideas that would help us do politics reasonably and help, should help us in morality. I also uh, was shaped as was sort of my whole cohort in the Harvard graduate program, the time I went through by uh, a figure who who tried to get us, um, tried to shape us by reference to a rather nihilistic view of Wittgenstein. So the Vic, the version of late Wittgenstein who tries to teach us uh, that we need to cure ourselves of the urge to do philosophy kind of thing because it's in danger of drawing you to deep nonsense. I know the uh, character you are referencing. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, 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 yeah. So, um, and I had difficulty sort of absorbing that because I just never understood really what deep nonsense was. Couldn't, that was sort of, I was the annoying student who raised the hand at the end of the semester and said, you've been talking about this all semester, but I still don't understand what it is. Anyway, um, but but there was... There, there was sort of a there's a aspect of that Wittgenstein that has stuck with me, and uh, maybe it's some aspect of what was being talked about. It summed up in his slogan about, um, or his late statement that uh, if you want to walk, you need friction. Right back to the rough ground, and I don't know how this. I, I don't know how I would think about this in other branches of philosophy. 
Um, but in the case of ethics, uh, I like that thought. And the way I uh, concretize it is to think that you know, there is always a danger, I think, in philosophy of, of our wheels spinning in the void. There's sort of too many degrees of freedom in the problems we face because we have such good different ways of coming up with distinctions. We can always think our way outside of any difficulty. But ethics um, purports to guide practice, and I think what provides the friction it needs to prevent itself from uh, becoming nonsensical or vain enterprises is the is the guiding of practice, the importance of guiding practice. Um, so, I mean, I think that's important generally uh, for ethical theory, and I that's the kind of practical role for moral theory I talk about uh, right. really in the book is is that uh, moral theory is important in various ways, but the first order of moral theory should be capable of guiding our practice. Um, right. And I guess also, um, uh, just to highlight what I, what I, I, I suspect you think is just sort of the, the, the flip side of that, that kind of statement that the theorizing not only has to guide our practice, but the theorizing also emerges out of a kind of confrontation of certain kinds of, um, practical obstacles, you know, problems that um, call for a kind of moral reflection as sort of part of the, the way to, 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 to handle them. Is that right? That's right. And, and th- that, um, I think that's all connected with the, the, the guiding pragmatist idea that uh, things are revisable in light of each other, right. th- that we're working in the middle of things. And there's no sort of external touchstone, um, and we just, uh, yeah. Great. So yes, we're not we're not starting with the abstract either. It's not like theory has this practice independent starting. Not, certainly not for moral theory, right? Um, right. And there's there's a um, there's kind of slipperiness to the idea of action guidingness or practice uh, action guidingness is often used in moral theory. Theory is often said to be action-guiding just because it, in principle, generates a definite ought for each situation. Right. Um, Well, and that's in principle, but I sort of want to know. uh, So I didn't use that term action-guiding. I I used the term deliberation-guiding, which I think more suggests that whatever moral theory does uh, to help us in practice, it, it needs to be done in a way that we really can take it up in deliberation, that it can help organize our deliberation. Uh, and the fact that it could, in principle, given enough time to calculate enough information or whatever, give us guidance, um, that to me is not so interesting. Right, yeah. And, you know, um, sometimes this comes up in uh, in political philosophy as part of the ideal, non-ideal theory debate, which is connected to a, a similarly named debate in moral philosophy. And sometimes the term action guidingness is just deployed as a way to describe a, a theory that just is, you know, is ready to tell you what to do rather than a theory <laughs> that explains, you know, explains how to connect the input and the output. <laughs> right. Right. A theory, 
yeah, what, what, what I sort of want or want to recommend people work on is theories that help people figure out what to right. do. Right. Um, so um, let's, uh, the, the animating um, sort of, uh, one of the, the animating sort of uh, uh, motives for the book uh, goes back to a, another challenge, not a challenge from your, your friend from uh, graduate school, but a challenge that comes ultimately from Michael Thompson. You call it Thompson's Challenge. It has to do with the possibility of a universal uh, moral community because, um, as, as we said a few moments ago, right, if, the, if these n- new moral norms or these, these moral Moral innovations are to count as moral, at least in the proper sense. Um, they have to be to be binding in a, a distinctive kind of way, and that means binding in a way that doesn't just bind you or me in some contingent sense, uh, in the way that uh, uh, you know some other kind of deal or bargain might. But uh, it binds uh, members of uh, the moral agents as such, or something similarly strong. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Thompson Challenge? Sure. Uh, and this comes from Michael Thompson's wonderful 2004 essay, right. uh, What Is It to Wrong Someone?, uh, where wronging someone is distinct from uh, wrongly acting in a way that affects them somehow. So it, it, wronging someone implies that, in effect, they had a right uh, against you that you not do what you did. Uh, so you had a duty to them not to do it. Right. Um, brings up this uh, directed duty idea. And, and that essay you know, runs through the changes of this idea in lots of different registers, as he put it. We get this in, in, uh, in sports. We get it in local ways, legal, legal systems in one place or another. Um, and they, th- these other... Uh, sort of s- smaller normative systems, they don't face the challenge. The, the challenge arises uh, for morality, understanding morality as I would, um, and I think it's not so controversial, uh, morality purports to be universally binding, to bind all agents. So a, a moral norm is something that applies to all agents. Um, and he he had this very nice way of uh, raising the challenge by saying, "Look, suppose uh, you've got two tribes, the Lombards and the Schlombards, on different sides of an alpine pass back in the day, and they've developed normative systems that are isomorphic. Amazingly, you know, they, uh, same in content." Uh, but they're, you know, but they basically haven't been in contact. So it's a, not, it's just a completely different provenance and effect of these normative mm-hmm. systems. Is so that wouldn't suffice for you to say that the Lombard and the Schlombard are, are uh, members of or bound by the same normative system? So what does it take? <laughs> Was the challenge. Um, and in that in that old essay, he just he he went, he ran, went through uh, various ways you might answer to the challenge, but none of them really emerges as terribly successful uh, in his assessment. Maybe he sees some promise in the one he labels Aristotelian. I don't know. Um, hmm. uh, right. So I'm sorry. Yes. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's worth going into the the details of, of those, but um... right. But it is a it, it's it's a the, the Thompson challenge. Then is a, it is a sort of maybe a more specific articulation of the worry about you know how when um, the sort of more local site where new norms tends to emerge and the sort of in, everyday interactions between, you know, very specific agents in light of some very specific challenge that they've got to work out together. Um, how does uh, any agreement struck at that very local level ever uh, reach the the level of, of, of being a properly moral norm in the sense that binding on everyone rather than these, the, these two particular people or in the Thompson case, the two particular tribes that may, uh, <laughs> you know, at some point uh, have, have some sort of minor interaction. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, um, you know, as I telegraphed the, the, the main answer to the question of how new normal or who can introduce new moral norms earlier is it's only the moral community can. And, and you know, it can only do that if it's really acting in a way that's embracing all persons. Um, so from that angle, the, 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 so the moral community can, how can the moral community do anything <laughs> Right. How can we be able to do anything? That's really uh, the main question that the body of the book had to answer, uh, and, and that's why the book is really as long as it is, is, is um, to explain how the moral community can sort of, in some sense, get together and do something. If it's the community of all persons, that, that um, took some explaining. Right. Um, and I take it that the... Uh, the core plank, as it were, in the in your explanation, um, again, I guess, keeping with um, some of the sort of pragmatism that's animating the view uh, overall, we, you begin um, not with some uh, claim about uh, the moral community uh, as it's already in place and all the rest, but the, 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 your account begins with um, a particular theory of sort of dyadic, um, what you call dyadic moral rights, uh, begins with a theory about um, how particular individuals trying to solve a problem or, or, or confronts uh, um, uh, uh, some context where they need to settle on uh, a way forward um, on how that, uh, how that can take place and then eventually sort of percolate up, as it were, uh, uh, th through uh, a, a process to being ultimately authorized by the moral community or articulated, we might say, uh, as you do, uh, the moral community. Can you tell us about what you call your uh, specificatory theory of dyadic rights? Yes, sure. I mean, before I get to the, the, the what that theory says let me say a little bit more about Great. about the problem um so, so i was just a moment ago putting it in the context of of trying to think about how is the moral community united in a way that allows it to do something um so you know it, it 
initially, well, I come off working, you're doing a book on democracy. I, I, my initial thoughts were, well, maybe it can be kind of quasi-democratic. We can, <laughs> you know, but then, you know, that's a little bit hard to imagine. So the community of all persons, uh, I mean, even a sort of a world government doesn't sound like the right way to go to think about morality. And I think there's good reason for that because governmental democracy, as we know it, requires a coercively bad constitution. Right. And even though you can have, you know, moral constraints on how democracies operate, it just doesn't fit with the idea of morality to have morality itself uh, have a such a coercively bad constitution. Mm-hmm. So that sort of put me back on the drawing board thing about how can the moral community do this. And uh, it was this thinking about these directed duties, duties that one person owes to another that suggested to me a different way of thinking about the anatomy, as it were, of the moral community, of sort of what structures it and hold, might hold it together as a, as a community. These duties that one person owes to another, um, but then there, there is a uh, important theoretical difficulty I think that people face when theorizing about these duties to someone. That uh, it's a cumbersome way of speaking, and and should come under our suspicion. Why bother to use it unless there's really a basis? Um, why not just say, you know, so if I promise you we'll have this meeting to have this discussion, you know, uh, that means that I have a duty to be ready at the appointed time. Uh, and I have a duty, you know, not to let you down. <laughs> You'd be so disappointed, you know, whatever. But, um, but what does it add to say, you know, I, I owe this duty to you? Um, why not just say, I've got a duty to talk with Bob, uh, where you're in some sort of um, direct or indirect object of the verb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I really take that seriously, and, and uh, sort of my gen- generic answer is that it's worth talking about these duties to someone, if and only if... Uh, it, there's something that can really ground the correlativity that's often supposed to exist between person A's obligation to B to do something and B's right that A do that. So that um, if there's really some uh, one fact that can ground those two things directly or indirectly, then then that would be sufficient basis to introduce this idea because it's not, that correlativity is not an idea that would be uh, come along it wouldn't come along with just the idea of uh, my having a duty to do something to somebody or for somebody that makes sense yeah, yeah. no that makes good sense yeah. and so, yeah, so 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 that's why that's what drew me into uh so I was thinking about you know what can be the anatomy or what can start to structure the moral community, what can start to tie people together into a community, and I was thinking that the directed duties could be useful in that regard, uh, and then that drew me into uh, 
what's called theories of rights often goes into that name where you have like the wheel theory and the interest theory are the best known contenders and where what they're grappling with in some way is these duties to someone. Um, although I think, I think the interest theory, you know, explains away that idea. Of <laughs> well, right. Dewey. Uh, but, but the wheel theory uh, decently captures it. Uh, and it's sort of, it's, you know, I was mentioning the, the importance for the co-relativity of having one sort of grounding fact and what grounds the, the idea that these are, there's really a, a, a right that's correlative to the corresponding duty that they're two sides of the same coin. And in the wheel theory case, you get, you get that with HLA Hart's idea um, mm-hmm. that each individual is a, is a small scale sovereign, as Hart put it. Um, and so exercises control over the right. So, you know, can waive the performance of a promise, for instance. Um, but, you know, but that's, that's, you know, that argument back and forth between those, those views have been driven by counterexamples and um, an immediate one that's run into there is, well, some right holders might not have that competence to waive. And so can you really right. um, capture the rights of the, those who lack these competences? Um, so that was the space that the specificatory enters into. And now I, uh, I should, I should get to the specificatory theory right. uh, itself um, where um so the the power to wave is a power that the is the power that the wheel theory focuses on as as helping explain why there's something dyadic going on, and in my case, this uh, the specificatory theory of moral rights focuses, and this always weirded people out. <laughs> they thought, this is well, wrong. yeah, I was gonna. I'm, I'm one of them who's a little bit. Ske- yeah. Well, I don't know if I want to say skeptical. It it, it 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 struck me as a novel feature of the view. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So you know where I'm going. So, I, I, I say uh, that this correlative, you know, or directed duty exists just in case the duty holder has the power to specify uh, what exactly ought to be done. Uh, yeah, and people say, no, no, that can't be right. You know, it's, it's, it's the it's the right holder that needs protection and everything. And um, well, so you know. It, as it emerges in my discussion, I'm saying that the power is severely constrained by the objective moral facts. So, so the, the one way in which, and this is backing up to the, the broad problem that motivates right. the book, the book about the problem about reconciling objectivity and the hand we can have in shaping morality is I'm saying that that is possible only where there are, are, only where there are objective gaps in morality, which gaps may arise from just novel questions, although that's a little bit hard to to imagine uh, a completely novel question. So, but but will arise when there are moral dilemmas, unresolved moral conflicts among the various elements of objective morality. And then that would leave a kind of practical indeterminacy where 
but there's room to to do some work. But is uh, I, I, this is really a a, uh, a a question about clarification? Um, I'm wondering how strong uh, for um, the specificatory theory, this sort of requirement that the 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 person who owes the obligation, you know, has the power, the normative power to decide the how the obligation or the features of how the obligation is supposed to be discharged. Um, uh, is it that some is is the claim that some level of indeterminacy is always present in uh, in these cases, and um, so the the person who owes the obligation, in light of that indeterminacy, has uh, the license or has the more the normative authority to settle the indeterminacy in one way or the other within broad constraints. Um, and I, I guess I'm still a little unclear about what the, what the, what, what's motivating you for that novel piece that uh, you say weirds people out. Good. So, uh, yeah, so I, w- I want to say uh, not has the power because that may suggest sort of too broad sure. a power, but has, has some power to specify. Got it. And, and the, the claim is that there's going to be some scope for specifying in in any of these duties, um, even if it's a promise to return the money of a certain amount on a certain date or whatever. Um, it, maybe the specification in those cases would go to the defeating conditions that may apply. I see. But if I return the money, I know you're you're in this completely mad manic phase, and you'll just tear it up. You know, and so do I should refrain, perhaps. You know, whatever, yeah, like whatever. the weapon at the beginning of the Republic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. I see. I see. Uh, um, so how does the, that? And then the the great. So and then since we're working in the middle of things with that sort of, I see. Uh, any. T- Particular like top-down assumption in in the way the arguments go or anything like that. Um, a, a, another key advantage of this view that you know people look at this power of this right holder and say, sorry, the power of the sorry, excuse me, the power of the duty holder that I'm emphasizing, and say that's wrong. But a great advantage of it is that it it doesn't require any high level of competence on the right holder's part. And so it's really quite open as to uh, which entities uh, can be members of the moral community. I see. Because you can get a right holder that uh, is severely cognitively disabled or from another species or what have you, and there'd be a full right holder in the moral community. Right. Um, so good. That's that's that that's helpful. Um, so the the specificatory theory is um, supposed to be the the first step in meeting this uh, Michael Thompson challenge, and it's you lay out a a three stage process by which a a moral norm in the in the proper sense now in the bona fide sense can emerge out of um, this more local uh, you know two parties uh, whether they be two people or not two parties sort of uh, as, as you say in a couple parts in the book sort of have to work something out 
intelligently <laughs> have you know they've confronted a problem and some some something has to be worked out amongst them um can you tell us how the this this particular view of dyadic rights helps build into or build up to that sort of initial step in the third in the the three-step process by which uh, uh, a new moral norm can emerge for the community sure i mean so um I mean, and I have to say, you know, this. I know this this chapter on uh, directed rights and duties is is kind of a bear at, at, at the beginning of the book, and I do warn the reader about that in the, in the introduction. Um, but it is very good. I mean, it, it, it's it it is it's demanding, but not um, not unrewarding. Well, good. Um, and the thing is, it's a twofer. So it it it. Uh, provides a basis for characterizing the input stage, which I call this first stage of getting candidate new moral content on the table. And, and it also, as you say, answers Thompson's challenge. So the, the, the motivating idea for, for the specific theory in somewhat more detail is that, it, or, or the argument for it invokes the idea of that, um, and here the special duties, special obligations come into play that, that there are the multiple moral considerations, multiple moral goods that matter. And contingently through social practices, uh, our social practices address some of these moral concerns to uh, certain people, particular people. And then they become charged with uh, protecting or or respecting or promoting those moral concerns, especially, and it's when these special concerns are addressed to them or they're specially addressed to them that, uh, that people take on these duties to someone. Um, and in being so charged with these, uh, I think it's very important that morality charges them as intelligent persons, uh, able to rethink, you know, what is the best way of proceeding here? Um, I mean, there is, as you say, then I shift in the exposition to talking about two people working things out together. Right. Um, And I call that the paradigm case. Uh, And so I sort of agree with the people who, who said, you know, the specificatory theory must be wrong in the sense they were thinking, well, what about the right holder? And, but I, uh, as I say, I, I wanted to leave the requirement um, for directedness in a way that allowed for right holders that lack the competence to engage in this discussion. Uh, but yes, in in the in the cases that uh, provide input to moral innovation, presumably those will be or certainly tend to be the kind of case where two people work out together. Uh, how they pre- should proceed. Right. So we've got the input stage. And then what are the other two stages? Yeah, so that input stage, uh, and I think, you know, resting on the idea of um, they're being charged as intelligent persons to, to work out what to do in their situation and folding in the idea of 
the possibility of there being an indeterminacy where they could be determinate. So the argument focuses in on those cases. Um, then that's the real authoritative step right. that they have authority to work out for those indeterminacy cases what they ought to do with the two of them. But that's just the two of them. And that's, you know, that's, a, that is, is a particular norm. It's, it lacks the, obviously it lacks the universality of a proper moral norm, but the idea is that it gets a candidate on the stage. Um, the, the, so three stages, the second stage is, is, um, uh, not so interesting, I think, or, or the idea is that it could happen that there is social convergence, right? As like on a convention, social convergence, and everybody say, okay, yeah, we all uh, go along with this new candidate norm. Maybe there, are, you know, some space in which there are competing ones about how to deal with trolling or whatever, and and it, it takes some sorting out. Uh, of which one's going to emerge in that on that score, but um, but I, I'm happy to leave that second convergence stage as as largely just a de facto one. Although I think it, it you know it can't it it won't work as a overall contribution to moral authority unless it works not unjustly, right? Uh, or you know if it, if it works fraudulently, that would I think defeat uh, any authoritative moral result coming out of it. It works coercively. Right. It would seem, uh, I'm sorry, it would just seem that the second stage is kind of just, maybe one way to put it would be the second stage is kind of just filling in the details of what it is for a new norm to be put on the table. Right? It's that it's got a kind of sociological uptake, maybe. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I guess I'd like to put it as, as sort of two, two ways of putting it on the table. So there's the initial... Right. Putting it on the table that's authoritative, but authoritative only for the two people. Right, right, right. Okay. And then there's the other way of putting it on the table, and then and then there's a way of putting it on the table for the society as a whole. That's right. And that's yeah, that's just sort of that's the articulation yeah, stage, right? A de facto, right? Uh, well, so the articulation, and I guess maybe this is worth saying, it hasn't come out yet. Uh, I like the fact that the the word articulating in my title has has a double meaning. And and one is meeting deals with the problem I've already talked about um, at some length. There are certainly enough length. Is is the issue of how does the moral community find its voice? In that we can't have a democracy like constitution, then how can it be that it it can do something in a way that's proceeding as if it had a voice at least? Um, and then the other uh, idea of articulating, I, I pick up from the you know you, you hear in robotics or or biologists talking about the skeleton of a grasshopper. You know, one part can move independently of the other, hmm. and allows these things to move. And uh, and that I think happens when you get this special addressing of certain moral concerns to certain people. That you get a kind of uh, articulation of morality into parts and then and then if i'm right that the these dyads can introduce new candidate norms then that's a metaphorically a kind of they're they're moving independently 
in a way that might end up moving the whole. Right. Um, so let me now ask the, the sort of broader um, the broader question. Uh, and this is uh, among several concerns that come up with once the the three the three step process is on the table. Once its sort of mechanics are are. Um, are described and and uh, and um, I was about to say articulated by you. Uh, <laughs> once its mechanics are sort of laid out, um, can you say a bit about why you think that the overall picture um, is uh, is consistent with? And you say it's just it's consistent with a moral realism. You don't have to be a moral realist. You're willing to sort of allow some of the the more familiar meta ethical um, uh, issues about. Um, uh, realism and anti various kinds of anti realism. You sort of th- those can sort of let those chips fall where they may. Almost, you say. Um, uh, how 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 is this view consistent with uh, a moral realism, or also the broader, more broadly speaking, moral objectivity? Well, sorry, it'll, if you don't mind, it'll help to sure to answer that to, to just say briefly what the third stage is. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, of course. Is, so you get the initial input, authoritative, just, but just particularly so, and then you get this convergence stage, which spreads to the whole society, which means globally. I mean, it's we're talking all persons here. So this obviously won't happen very often, but it can happen, um, and maybe did happen with promises, for instance. Um, and and then the third stage is a ratification stage, which uh, is maybe normative but not authoritative because there is no authoritative body that can speak. But but it's in effect saying, coming to self consciousness, we 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 accept this, mm. um, not not as a kind of parliamentary act, but as a sort of coming to self acceptance and reflective acceptance uh, on the part of the moral community. Um, so anyway, so there is that broad and inclusive uptake, which uh, maybe that will say something towards the objectivity. Um, but it, it, the realism, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm starting out at just assuming that there are some objective moral norms and then that, that they come into conflict and may leave some indeterminacies. Um, but I, I do think what I'm doing is consistent with uh, moral realism, uh, at least, well, so uh, as long as there's full scope for letting the uh, real moral principles that the realist has in mind uh, take any form. So if they take the form that builds into the conditionals um, that the world has taken such a path that that a new candidate moral norm entered and it became convergent and then was accepted, you know, I have no quarrel with it. Right. I, I, I do think that the, especially the exercise of the moral power at the input stage is a very different kind of fact to have in the antecedent of such a conditional than a sort of circumstantial fact. 
ordinary circumstantial fact because it is referencing a moral power. Um, right. If but if the if the pathways by which these new candidate norms get introduced and then uh, there's some degree of convergence and then eventually a ratification um, and the, the uh, instances in which that happens, um, uh, given all of the contingency in the pathways, <laughs> uh, what sense of objectivity are we um, – what sense of objective uh, uh, are the the emergent norms once they've made it through the process? Objective, given all the contingency that lies in their their generation. Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I I, I think there there are two ways in which contingency can come up to to make us troubled about objectivity here. Um, one is the sort of path dependence of the process, uh, just taken a sheer path dependence. And, and then the other is thinking about what puts us in one path or the other. It's clear right. that we're talking about human actions doing it. And so there's dependence on the attitudes of the, the participants. Um, but it, so there's clearly some, so taking the second one first, there's, there's uh, clearly some attitude dependence but I think it's not an that kind of attitude dependence that should trouble us. Or certainly if we think it's important to reconcile the objectivity of morality with our having a hand in it, sort of the general problem you know, stated at the beginning, uh, it shouldn't trouble us. We just realize that that's, there's going to be, you know, morality isn't going to exist in, in a way that's independent of human attitudes altogether. Uh, but it, what I think can be defended for my view, is is the claim that that the truth of any given moral norm isn't dependent on people's believing it, right? That kind of thing. Um, and then and then the the the, um, the 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 path dependence um, raises it's interesting questions about retrospective moral judgments. Or about you know somewhat more metaphysically, if you contemplate different possible moral futures, where I mean, obviously in these cases, if there's I mean, the idea is that there's some discretion, and the discretion could be differently exercised at the input stage, and could then take society on different paths, and so you, uh, which which way morality ends up depends upon these decisions that are not forced by morality. Right. Um, and, and so I offer an account of opportunities maybe a little bit more pragmatic that I think the important thing about objectivity and morality is it provides a basis that, 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 um, that the theory being given provides, it certainly does not disrupt a basis for our agreeing reasonably uh, despite initial disagreement. Uh, and the thing is, or so where we have a disagreement, can we settle it reasonably? Um, and although we can wonder about the past and what to say when retrospectively judging people in the past or we're doing nuclear exper you know, experiments with radiation in the human beings or something, um, and what would we say about this people doing this in 1945? 
right. or we can wonder about what we, th- what we think about the possibility of two divergent futures. We can't, we can't, we can't actually have a disagreement with those people in the past or with the denizens of these possible futures. It's, 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 it's those are, that's a metaphysical puzzle and not a, not a practical I disagreement. I see. So it's another feature of the pragmatist, um, another pragmatist feature of the view that it's, um, it is d- deeply, I don't want to say the word tethered in a, <laughs> disparaging way it's it, it's connected to the actual sort of problem solving of real moral agents then yeah at least this is um so this is a sufficient uh sort of objectivity to, to satisfy me uh, you know different philosophers differ as to sort of how deeply a priori or metaphysical an account they want but i i explained at the beginning why um, at least for ethics, want something that's more tethered to the right. practical. Well, Henry, it's been um, it, the the book is really um, again. I'll say a big fan of the book. Uh, I learned a lot reading it. Um, we've got time for one one final question. Um, what's what's the next project? Your your work has been. Um, uh, sort of following a particular trajectory, which it's been it has a a kind of um, a, a series of threads running through it, uh, from the early work on practical reasoning about final ends uh, to the democracy book and the the medical ethics stuff that you've been working on, and now this latest. Uh, wh- where does it go next? Well, <laughs> uh, so th- this is actually the second time I've used the s- subtitle. Toward a constructive ethical pragmatism, <laughs> and I think it's actually time to get down to it. I think, <laughs> and, and the the way I, I want to do that in my next project is pick up on on an idea that that comes up in the book just out um, that I've I've mentioned the idea of of uh, moral concerns being specifically addressed to certain people as sort of their up to them to to look out for. Um, and that raises the idea of a division of moral labor. Mm. And so I want to, I want to pursue this idea of a division of moral labor. I mean, you get that, like somebody I think is alive to that is a Rawls. Mm-hmm. So Rawls has, um, there's a place where Rawls addresses an objection to his principle of fair equality of opportunity. He, he worries that, Someone will think it will give rise to a meritocratic society of a bad sort that creates just a new class system based on merit. Right. And he basically says, yes, if you just had this principle of fair equality of opportunity addressed to the kinds of systems that uh, a lot places in universities or jobs, that would be a serious worry. But there's this other kind of system, more like the tax system, which is addressed by this other principle, namely the difference principle, Mm -hmm. which will prevent accumulations of wealth over the generations. And so you're much less likely, not impossible, but much less likely to have any kind of new class system that's got any kind of permanence developing. Whether or not that's a fully sound answer, that's the kind of answer that interests me and sort of starts to illustrate this idea of the division of moral labor. You've got, 
and and Scheffler here I'm completely riding on on Sam Scheffler's articulation of this idea in defense of Rawls right. against Jerry Cohen. Uh, but but what gets at, added in, given the picture from this book I just came out with, is the idea that uh, the principles can be revised as we go forward. Um, and so that gives some real dynamism to this idea of division of moral labor. And I want to I want to explore that. Well, that sounds um, really, really interesting, and um, I, I, I will look forward uh, to new work on that, maybe uh, the next book, and um, when it comes out, maybe we'll have you back on the program. Well, I appreciate your interest, and I appreciate all your questions, from which I've, I've learned a lot. So. Been great. Well, fabulous. It's, it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, uh, so I want to thank you for your time today, Henry. And I want to thank our listeners as well for joining us today for our discussion. Uh, The book is written by Henry Richardson. It's titled Articulating the Moral Community Toward a Constructive Ethical Pragmatism. And it's just recently been published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy. And bye for now.